And so I actually ended up dropping out of high school, not once, but twice. I never graduated. And while all my friends were off to college, I was living with my parents, gaming up to 16 hours a day in their basement. I remember I was, I was drunk when they handed me my son in the hospital. They didn't know I was drunk. I worked with people who could stay abstinent from crack cocaine. And then they went back to prison because they could not stay abstinent from marijuana. They will send inappropriate pictures, primarily of their body parts. Our teens will send back their naked pictures or partially naked pictures. I had overdosed in eighth grade. I think that was shortly after I was suspended. Our teens are going through their hardest life transition in a world of rapid change and information anarchy. These are their stories and the advice from experts dedicated to helping them. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. It happens that in this work with teenagers, a teen will come through the program and have success and have failures. And you know that as they move on from the program, that they're still going to struggle. And you really get very close to all of the people that come to your program. Our staff, we're really rooting. We become cheerleaders for, we become allies with, we become champions for these teens. And we know that recovery is not done when a teen is graduating. And we know that relapse is part of recovery. And when we see a teen come through recovery, and leave and we keep in touch with them and there's relapse and we hear from the parents and there's more struggles and things get worse. You're really sad because you grow to really love these kids and you grow to understand why and you grow to become partners in their struggle so that they know that they're not alone in their struggle. My guest today is a young woman who came through our program and she drove us crazy. She was a pain in the butt. But every single one of us loved her and every single one of us is rooting for her. And when she graduated, we, we saw the struggles that she was facing. Things got bad. I'm going to let her tell you her story. And we never stopped just rooting and always wanted to be a part of her relapse recovery. I ran into her mother recently at a talk I was giving. And of course, the when I saw her, I was like, oh, my God, how's she doing? And I got the greatest answer that you could ask for. And then not a few days later, this young woman asked if she could come up and visit. And she came up. And it wasn't just when we saw her, but when we heard her talk, she's got it. She's got recovery finally. You know, and it's not just that she's finally sober. It's that she's finally in recovery. So I asked her to come on to the show today and explain to parents, teachers, and clinicians what this is like from a teen's perspective. This is Beyond Risk and Back, and my show today is I Just Wasn't Done Yet. All right, girl, thanks for being here. This is hella courageous, and I'm really proud of you. And my wife, Chris, and I, after you left yesterday and we saw each other after work, we're just like, oh, my God. Like, it was the first time we got to meet you. We've got to meet your shadow side and your dragon and all your and your good times and your bad times. But yesterday, I feel like 
I got to meet you, the real you, for the first time. And so that's why I want parents to meet you. I want teachers to meet you. I want clinicians. to. I want the world to meet you because my wife and I love you so much, and we're so proud of you. So thank you for coming on. I know it's a big risk sharing your story. So thank you for being here. Of course. If my listeners haven't figured out today, we're not using names today. And this is my guest's. This is what she wanted, and of course, this is what we're going to offer her. So I'm going to let her tell her story and keep my mouth shut for a little while. So go ahead, girl. Well, my using started in seventh grade. I was 12, but I feel like my story starts a little bit before that. Um, when I was really young, I know my parents' marriage was kind of a disaster from the start. I don't remember them ever being happy together. I don't remember our house ever being calm. And their divorce just kind of sparked it to get worse. It was just fighting all the time. There was never just a calm moment in our house. And when I was seven or eight, they got in a really big fight. And we had to call and get my dad arrested for domestic violence against my mom and my sisters. And that is still, to this day, the worst night of my life. Well, one of them. And after that, I wasn't allowed to see my dad for a long time. And eventually, we got visits through the court that had to be supervised and all that. But, I don't know, nothing was really ever the same after that. And that's when their divorce was finally, like, happening. And they were really split up this time. And it wasn't just a oh, we'll split up and get back together and work out like it was done. And up until, honestly, a few years ago, I was always rooting for my parents to get back together. I always wanted, for some reason, things to work out and things to just be okay. And it was just never like that. Their divorce lasted for something crazy, like four or five years, because nothing was just ever settled. And their divorce got to the point where, I actually didn't live at home for about a month. I went and stayed with my childhood best friend at her house because I just couldn't do it anymore. And I think that's what started a lot of things for me because I just couldn't deal with my house. I couldn't be in my house. I couldn't deal with all the secrets and lies being kept from me. And I just never knew what was truly happening. My parents never told me really any details about the divorce. Nothing was clear to me on why they were getting a divorce, why these things were happening. And when I first started using, like I said, it was in the seventh grade, me and my friend at the time were just curious. It just started off with one night we got drunk. We stole my stepdad's alcohol and we just drank and it seemed so fun. And then the next day, my other friend, who was a freshman in high school at the time, so she was like two, three years older than me, I was so hungover. And she pulled out a jar of weed and said, this will take away your hangover and this will make you happy. Using was fun, just like my little secret for a change. Like, I didn't have to be the one kept in the dark. I got to, like, have my own secret life that they didn't know about. And it just, I think, made me feel more, like, grown up and more equal and more like I didn't have to be the one that was, like, shut out and on my own. And I just never 
really felt connected to my family for a long time because I have three sisters and they're all a lot older than me. My older sister is 10 years older than me and they all have a different dad than me. So I think the divorce just affected us in very different ways because it wasn't their dad. It wasn't really their family in a way. And it was my dad and I wasn't allowed to see him. And it was my personal parents that were being torn apart. And it just felt like it was my mom on one side, my dad on the other. And then my sister was just somewhere in the distance. And then it was just me in the middle. And I didn't like that. And it just was an escape. Like I found so much comfort in just being with my friends and forgetting it all and just really letting go. And I thought that was like happiness. But it just evolved really quickly. By the end of eighth grade, I was just smoking all the time and like drinking whenever I could steal alcohol from my stepdad. And it didn't seem bad. Like, I thought I was such hot shit in middle school, just walking around like, oh, yeah, like, I smoked weed this weekend. Like, I don't know. I just thought it made me a person who I wanted to be and, like, a life that I wanted. And it it took me a long time to realize that that's not the life I want. But come around freshman year and I smoking every day I was drinking every day I was filling water bottles with alcohol and going to school I was ditching class every day to hang out with my friends and just go get high and that's when it started to kind of become a problem because I was failing school I wasn't in school even and I was just high all the time and then summer of freshman year leading into sophomore year that's when it just got really crazy. Like, I was never sober, not for a second. And I would steal my mom's car and go to horse tooth. I would just do anything to be out of the house. I snuck out every night, just climbed out of my window and did whatever I wanted. And no matter how many times I got caught, it didn't stop me. Like, I just didn't care. Because the consequences just didn't feel real at the time. Like, it just, nothing felt real at the time. Like, it just seemed like I wanted to do that forever because I felt good. And I felt like I had connection to people just because I was always with people. And I thought these people were going to be my friends forever. And, like, we'd eventually move out and move in together and just have this life. And then sophomore year started. And that's when it got way worse. I was experimenting with pills. Uh, I was experimenting with harder drugs like Molly and stuff. And I was drinking all the time, way too much. And that's when my mom started to realize it wasn't as much of a teenage phase as it was a serious problem. And so in November of my sophomore year, is when I finally got admitted to Fire Mountain. I was there for five months, and like you said, I was definitely a pain in the ass there. But, I don't know, I learned a lot of things there that helped me, and my best friend there actually got me into meth the week that we got out of Fire Mountain. And that was the moment that I spiraled 
way too far. I had been out of Fire Mountain for a week and I started doing meth like immediately. And before that, before I went to Fire Mountain, pretty much the hardest drug I did was Molly. And I don't know, just looking back now, that seems so minimal compared to all the other things that I've done since. But she started me on meth and the first night I did it with her, my first night ever doing it, she overdosed at my house. Like really bad too. She didn't know where she was. She was biting through her cheeks and her tongue and just being absolutely crazy. And I thought I was going to get caught. I thought that was it. Like my life is so over at this point. She went to the hospital. She went back to treatment. And I thought that I was going to get in trouble was my biggest concern at that point. And I had a talk with my parents, never got caught. And once I got away with that, I thought I could get away with anything. And I swore to myself I would never do meth again after that night. But that lasted a few months. Um, I got into coke really bad shortly after this whole experience. And it started out, I did it one day in the school bathroom. And I thought it was the best feeling ever. And then it turned into a couple times a week. And then every day. And then it was just bad and the two girls that got me into coke I thought they were my best friends and I don't know they just weren't and it took not being friends with them for me to really see their true colors because the whole time I was friends with them everyone would tell me like no they aren't good people they're gonna hurt you but it was just so fun to be their friend like there was never a dull moment Nothing was ever boring or we weren't ever not doing something. And it just felt right. Except they were obviously not a good influence. They got me into Coke and they both struggled with some eating disorder stuff. Like they were kind of like the hot girls in the school. And me being friends with them, I felt the need to be more like them. So I started throwing up a lot. Everything I ate, I would just throw up. And then eventually that turned into just not eating at all. So I got really skinny, really sick. And pretty much the only way I could function anymore was doing coke because I was so tired and sick. I just needed something to get me up. And then my mom eventually caught on to that, too. I was just in such a bad place, like not even just physically anymore. Like I couldn't even think anymore. My mind was just so fogged all the time. If I wasn't doing coke, I was doing meth. If I wasn't doing that, I was smoking weed. If I wasn't doing that, I was drinking. There was just always something and I couldn't function anymore. I was failing school completely. I was already going to not graduate on time. And it was just a mess. I was so sad that I just couldn't leave my bed anymore. It felt like if I had to get up and go do things, it just felt like I was actually going to die. Like I couldn't bear the idea of doing anything. And 
that's when I went back to Fire Mountain for the second time. And I think once in between my first day at Fire Mountain and my second time, I went to just like a short-term inpatient-type deal to just keep me safe for a few days. But it was too bad. So I went to Fire Mountain for about a month again. And I got out and I somehow got worse again. I got into meth way, way worse. I started out doing it just like here and there, whenever it was just given to me. And then I was using all my money that I got from work to buy it. And then it just spiraled until I was eventually on a two-month binge and, like, not eating, not drinking, just so unhealthy and me and my parents got in a big fight they were going through my phone and like talking to people off my phone saying to stay away from me and stuff and I don't know I was just in such a weird place and my mind was so just not there and I really wasn't me anymore and I freaked out went over got in a big fight with my dad and he said he was calling the cops so I said I was leaving and then I ran away but I wasn't gone for long because I worked like a day later so I had to come home and go to work and that's when I got like in real trouble because they realized just how bad it was they realized just how high I always was and they just couldn't take seeing me like that anymore And that made me want to do it more. Like, I didn't want to be told what to do. Every time I got caught, they told me what to do. They told me who I can see and everything. And that wasn't what I wanted. I Like, that just made me want to be bad more. Because I was old enough to make my own decisions. Like, I wasn't making the right ones, but I felt like I could do everything on my own and I didn't want them to help me when I didn't want it. And then my mom, after I ran away, took away my car keys, took away everything. And I was coming down really hard, got in another fight and I packed up my stuff and I was about to run away again. And I had been stealing my dad's pain pills and trading them for meth and then before I ran away I took all the pills I had and put them in my shirt and I was about to leave again and I couldn't find the car keys so I was ripping the house apart trying to find the car keys and the whole time I was searching for them my mom was on the phone with the cops I finally find the car keys I open the front door to leave like three cop cars roll up an ambulance rolls up a fire truck rolls up so I was like well mm, here's the car key sorry sorry about that and then I argued with the cops for like three hours straight they just kept trying me like trying to get me to go to the hospital they said that I was unhealthy and they needed to check my vitals but I knew that my parents just wanted me to get to the hospital so I could get admitted somewhere again. And by this point, I had been in and out of short-term treatment. I had gone to another treatment facility that was supposed to be long-term, and then it was an awful place, so I left there. But I had been in other treatment facilities 
I don't even know how many times at this point. So I was just done. Like, treatment obviously wasn't helping me. I didn't listen to anything they said. So I didn't want to just have to go and sit in another facility and fake my way through another program. It just wasn't worth it. So I argued with the cops for forever. And finally, I was just over arguing with them. So I agreed to go to the hospital, but I still had this bag of pills in my shirt. And so I said, if I'm going to the hospital, I need to go to the bathroom before we go. Because I wanted to, like, flush them down the toilet or throw them away or just get them off of me. So I didn't catch another charge because last time I ran away, after me and my dad's fight, he pressed assault and harassment on me. So another charge was the last thing I needed. And they said if I went to the bathroom that a cop would have to go and watch me. And I just agreed, thinking that I could slam the door shut and go to the bathroom without the cop, lock it before they got in. And I tried to slam the door, like three cops just broke the door down and that's when they handcuffed me. And then I had no choice but to go to the hospital. So I get there, they change me into scrubs or whatever, and I still have all the pills in my shirt, but they let me keep my sports bra on because it didn't have any metal. So I still have the pills in my shirt as I'm sitting in the hospital for hours, just waiting to get into somewhere. And I was so mad at my parents. I didn't want them anywhere near me. I sat in the room by myself, and this was my lowest point. I had been using for months straight. I didn't know who I was at all anymore. I was just there. I didn't feel anything anymore. I could barely even get high anymore. It just, that was my breaking point. And so I went into the bathroom at the hospital and I took all the pills I had in my shirt. And that's when I called my mom back to the room finally. And I was just apologizing for everything that I ever did because I thought I was dying. And that's not how I wanted to, like, leave her. Because I'm really not a bad person under it all. I've just made bad choices. But, like, in the end, I still love my family. And I still, like, wish things could have been different. And I still have dreams for my life. They just felt like I could never get them with the path I was going on. And I was so mean to my family all the time. But I didn't mean to. Like, it wasn't me talking. And right after I would say something mean, I would just think in my head that I know that's not what I wanted to say. I know that I didn't mean that, but I could never have it in me to apologize. It just, I was such, just not even a person anymore. And so I took all the pills. I called my mom back. I apologized for everything. and. She asked me why I was talking like that, and I told her, Mom, I think I'm dying. And that's when I got admitted to another short-term facility, but it ended up not being so short-term, and I stayed there for, like, a month until they found another placement for me. I was at that place for about a month, too. That place was the worst situation I've ever been in. 
it was so awful. The staff were so mean. And I think that was kind of my version of like scared straight. Like I was so tired of going in and out of treatment. The last year of high school that I completed without going to treatment and not finishing a semester or a school year was freshman year. And I am currently a senior and I have not been in school. And that's just, that was the last straw that I needed to put me into recovery. Could you tell parents what rock bottom feels like? In a way, it just, I don't know, you don't really feel anything anymore. Like, there's a certain numbness there because you felt so much hurt. You felt so much anger and sadness, and you have exploded so many times in ways that people don't see that you're exploding. Like, I wouldn't freak out and yell at my parents because I'm angry about the divorce. I would just go out and use, or I would sneak out, or I would run away. Like, they don't see that those things are just, like, cry for help. And then after just being denied so many times, you felt all the hurt you can feel, and then you're just nothing. Like, you're not a person anymore. You don't have interest anymore. You can't even function anymore, and you're just kind of there. How long have you been sober now? Since June. I don't know how many months that is, but I think six or seven. What's the best part of it and what's the worst part of it? The best part is I finally have my family back. Because even when I was little, like I said, I was never really connected with them or anything. But now my sisters are my best friends. I love my mom. And I didn't talk to my dad for like four years of my life. And me and him are really close now. Like, I finally have a family and I finally have a support system that I feel like I can talk to. And I'm finally going somewhere in life. Before, the only place I was going was, honestly, I was just working my way up to death. I thought about killing myself every day. I was just using all the time and I that's not a sustainable lifestyle. But now I finally... I'm working on graduating on time. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to actually have a life. And the success that I feel and the success in the future that I want is the main thing that keeps me going. One of the things you, you told me yesterday is that, you know, you have this job and sometimes you feel like all you do is work and sleep. But then you talked about how much money you have saved up and why. And it cracked me up because that's something that you can only experience when you're sober. When you start to see how much you spent on drugs, where are you with all that? Well, I haven't bought drugs since, I mean, June. So it feels, I don't know, I used to love spending money on anything, like on clothes and drugs, obviously. But it was never my own money. And I think that's just another piece that, like, makes me feel like I'm finally doing something right because I have a purpose to save my money. Like I don't need to blow it on drugs and stupid things. Like I can save it and work towards something bigger. What's the worst part about being sober? I stopped doing drugs and then all my friends just kind of disappeared. 
we weren't friends anymore because I couldn't go out and smoke or I couldn't go out and party on a Friday night. But I don't know. That's not that's just not my scene anymore. Like, that's not what I want anymore. And it feels like no other teenager is in this place. Like, everyone I know, everyone at my school, just all they do is go out and, like, smoke and drink and have fun. And they always seem so happy doing it. And all through my time in recovery, people told me, well, if you stop using and, like, you get back into doing the things that make you feel good and all this stuff, it'll make you happy and it'll help with all the depression and all the cravings and all that. But I've done every single thing that people told me would help. And now I'm just alone and, like, sad because I don't have anyone there anymore the only people I had ever were through drugs and it's just really really lonely I found when when I was working on my sobriety how bored I was that it was just so unbelievably boring and when I would go to a a party I was the most boring person in the party and you and I are not <laughs> we're not comfortable being boring people we're not comfortable not being excited we're not comfortable being the loudest person in the room and it's something that both you and I share but that's a hard part to get over and 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 I know there's been and there's something that you said earlier that I want to get back to but there's been so many adults telling you that you get through this part and and you you stop being the most boring person because you do find the new set of friends. But you're not in that space right now. So what keeps you going every day? What's what's the thing that makes you say, no, I'm not going to go back to that old scene. I'm going to keep going despite the fact that I'm lonely, I'm bored. What keeps you going? What What keeps you sober right now? This is the first time that my family has ever told me that they're actually proud of me. And I don't want to mess that up at all. It feels good to have someone else say that they're proud of what you're doing and they're proud of the steps you've made. And I don't know, it's hard to find a reason to just be sober for yourself because everything is so much easier when you're not sober. And it's hard to just be like, okay, well, I just want to do this so I could just struggle more. Like, sobriety is hard to do on your own. And just having my family tell me they're proud of me is enough right now. Like, I'm sure one day when I'm past the loneliness and when I'm just feeling more comfortable in myself, then that's probably when I could be like, yeah, I'm doing this completely for me but right now I need that extra support and I can't disappoint my family anymore and the more that like the farther I get into my sobriety the more I feel like I'm doing this for myself now because all the times that I went to treatment like that wasn't for me I didn't want that and I had to hit a point where I want it like I want to be successful I want to like be a member of my family and I want them to be proud of me. And it's hard to get there 
And I really believe that no one's going to get better until they want it. I have so many friends that have tried to get help so many times and they're never going to get it because they don't want it yet. And I just finally hit that point where I need it for me because I don't want to feel like that anymore. You provide one of the greatest challenges and you, you have been talking since you started talking. You, you have been talking about one of the greatest challenges that we see in working with teens and addictions. And that you said something you said, you know, I just didn't want them to tell me what to do. I felt like an adult. I wanted to be grown up. And every time they told me what to do, you know, I went against it. I rebelled it. But what parents see their kids doing who want that level of autonomy and independence is, you know, here you are saying, don't tell me what to do. I can make my own decisions. But then the decisions you were making were killing you. So what does a parent do in that point? What would you tell a parent who's dealing with a teen like you who's saying, don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do it myself. And then they go out and use meth. What do you say to that parent? What's your advice? I think the only thing a parent can do is just, I don't know, like support you through it. Like keep your kids safe as much as you can, but no, like you really, you don't have the control. Like no matter how much trouble in I was in, I chose to do what I wanted anyway. Like nothing could stop me unless I wanted to stop myself. And you just have to let your kid go through that process. Like you can, Try a million things to keep them safe and keep them sober, but they need to want it and you need to just support them to get to that point. Like there's nothing you can do. You think you're doing the right thing, but you're only going to make it worse the more you lock them in the house, the more you tell them they can't do things. Like, I don't know. That's the biggest thing. My mom always thought it was helping me stay safe to just keep me grounded and locked in the house and all I could do was go to school and come home but that never helped because then I just felt more trapped and that just made me want to rebel more like I think just keeping your kids privileges like reasonable and just supporting them through it that's the big thing I never felt like I was really getting support I felt like I was just being pushed away and punished in that made me feel worse like I want to feel like loved through it still I don't want to feel like I'm a burden I don't want to feel like I can't live a life I just wanted to be loved through it and then I think if I was showed more like compassion through it I think that would have changed a lot and then on the other side of it as you start your 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 path to recovery and your path to sobriety and your path through sobriety, which is definitely its own adventure. What, what you said was you're doing it for yourself, but to get there, to get to that point where you're doing it for yourself, you did need to do it for them. And that's a strange dichotomy too, especially with your relationship with your family, where there was this such a strong desire to be loved and supported there was such a strong frustration and anger towards them for for what happened in your childhood. And then that's the don't tell me what to do. I'm going to make my own decisions. But of course, they're going to intervene because the decisions you're making are life and limb, you know, level decisions. And then on the other side of it, what is keeping you sober 
is the desire to not disappoint them anymore and become a part of a real family. And that is in turn created an ability for you to do it for you. What is it about being part of this family system that's been as dysfunctional and has struggled as much as you have? What is it about this this family that makes you want to be such a part of it so much so that you're willing to give up everything that makes you have friends and have fun and all this type of stuff? What is it? I think just the lack of family that I had when I was younger is a motivation for me. Like I want what I didn't have when I was little. Like my parents were never home. I wasn't connected to my sisters. I I don't know. My parents just weren't a parent figure. And I think that's the big reason I rebelled. And it's also a big reason to keep me going. Like I finally have parents. They're in a point where they can like be there for me. And I don't want it to be how I, it was when I was little. Like I want to have someone there because I never did. And I just, I need that now in my recovery and I can't do it alone. And I just wanted parents so bad, and now I finally have it that I don't want to throw it away again. It's like you're, it's like you're trying to tell parents, you gotta get out of the way, but don't go away. I think that's a big thing in it. Like, you can't control your kids, but you can't leave them either. Cause that's just gonna, that's gonna make it worse. They need you just as much as you need them to be okay. And, it can't be done alone on either end. Are you still in the one day at a time piece? Or are you, you and I talked a little bit about some of your ideas for the future. And that's always a careful conversation with someone in recovery. And I, and I felt it yesterday as we were talking. I was like, and what school do you want to go to? And what this? And you were like, you know, chill out there. I'm just want to go. <laughs> like, I don't know where. I just want to. So you feel like you're still in the day to day and one day at a time thing? Or are you feeling like you have some comfort and power in thinking about two months from now, six months from now, a year from now? I think it's a little bit of both. Like, I still do need to take it one day at a time. There's not a day that goes by that I don't have a craving. I think about it every morning when I wake up and I have to stay awake at night until I'm so tired that I can't keep my eyes open because if I just lay there trying to go to sleep, it's all I think about. And then I just spiral again and it will be one day at a time for a long time. But I do find comfort in thinking about like, well, if I get through this day, then I have tomorrow, and then I can eventually work towards the things I want, but I need today to get there. Does it help or hinder the process to have your parents talk about possibilities for the future, or do they just need to honor and respect the one-day-at-a-time thing, or are they part of your working on balancing that out right now? I think they should respect the one-day-at-a-time thing much more, because when they just blast me with all these things for the future, that's when it stresses me out so bad. Like, I get such bad anxiety about, like, well, like, there are some days I don't feel like I can do a lot of things. So some days I just need to, like, take care of myself, and that can that's all I need to do that day. Like, I can't 
apply for colleges some days. Like, they always put so much pressure on me to get so far ahead in my life and do so many things for my future. But, like, some days I just need to focus on that day and nothing else. Like, there are other days I will go to them and I will say, like, okay, maybe today, like, we figure out what I'm going to do for my community service next week. And, like, that's big enough. I don't need them to pressure me going into college immediately. Like, if I take a gap year or something, I need to know that that's okay. Like, I need to know that's accepted. Because for a long time, it's going to be one day at a time. And honestly, it might be like that forever. Like, there's going to be some days I just can't do as much. And I need to just know that that's okay if I can just get through that day. That's pretty powerful for people to hear because there's been so many years of you quote end quote falling behind right not just in school but in life and in brain development and stuff and that's a, that's what drugs do like that's basic neuroscience and neuropsychology is that these things stunt growth and so suddenly your eyes are clear they're bright again you're not using you're facing the cravings head on and the first thing they they were like, oh thank god you're okay and we all made it through that so what are you going to do next and and hurry up because you're behind and that's that's hard and that what what you're saying is such a powerful boundary for parents to be able to work with and it's hard because they're wounded too they're hurting too and it's something that i had said to you before we started recording was the the selfishness of addiction and the selfishness of recovery for you to be able to set a boundary with your parents to say, Hey, today I have about thinking about community service next week. And that's about my limit. And of course that makes total sense when before you could not even handle anything of life and thus the, the massive amounts of drugs. So handling one thing at a time and one day at a time. Yeah, that's about it. Yet there's a real fear that this level of behindness is just going to cause you more pain and suffering. Is that true? Is that how you feel? Because I know that's a parent's fear. Are you afraid of that? Are you afraid that you're behind in life? Yeah. It's not even a for sure that I'm going to graduate on time. So, I mean, worst case, I'll graduate over the summer or like the beginning of next year. But it's just like my parents expect me to graduate now, like, they want me to get caught up so bad, but I just, I can only do so much. Like, for some time, getting through the day seems so impossible. Like, recovery is so hard that there are some days that I don't even want to do it anymore, and I just need to focus on one thing. Like, I need to break my day up and be like, okay, before noon, I'm going to just eat a nice breakfast and like take a shower. And then that's enough for them because I can't do all these things when I'm still struggling and it's going to be a struggle for a long time. And I just need them to know that just stressing me out about the future is just going to set me back more than I'm already set back. I can only do so much. And when there's pressure to do so much more than I feel like I'm capable of, it just makes everything harder. How do you know when you're when relapse is is close when you're when it's dangerous when you're kind of in the red zone and you go for help what's what's going on when you're like uh oh this happens right before I use I always just have a complete freak out like crying and not being able to just function 
And I've always struggled a lot with like suicidal ideation. And the first thing I think of when I'm struggling that bad is using. And then when that doesn't feel like an option, then it's suicide. And I just, I feel like I can't escape it sometimes. And that's when I feel trapped in what I'm feeling, that's the red flag. Like that's when I need to call my parents. That's when I need to get help because I just feel out of control. Like I was sitting in my car the other night and I was having a really bad night and I was crying and freaking out and I didn't trust myself to drive because I didn't know where I would take myself. And that's when I need to call my parents. When I don't know how unpredictable my next move is, like that's when I need to end it. When you make those kinds of phone calls to your mom and dad now, what's the best way for them to react? How's their best support come through? By honestly just being there. I can't be alone when I'm like that. It just makes everything worse because I already feel so lonely and so alone that when I don't have anyone to even just like just sit there with me. I don't need to talk. I don't need to be lectured. I don't need to be told how everything's going to get better because right now it doesn't feel like it is. And that just makes me feel more pressure to somehow make things better. Like I just need someone to sit with me through it. Not say anything, not do anything, not offer advice, not tell you how things should be. Just sit. Yeah. I just need someone so I'm not alone in it. Like I don't need to hear a million things I could do better or how tomorrow's going to be a new day because it doesn't feel like that in the moment. And that just makes me feel worse about myself because I'm like, well, why can't I just do all these things? I just need someone to let me know like they're there and I don't have to go through it alone. And that's enough support. Like I don't need a million things to do better and a million reasons why to keep going. I just need someone to sit with me through it. It's hard for a parent to watch their kid in that much pain and in that much desperation to do things that can cause that much damage. It's hard for them to sit aside and just say, I'm holding space for you to to go through your process without just jumping in and wanting to do anything, including locking them up in a facility or stuffing them into therapy or God knows what. But what is it that you need parents to know about how they parent a kid who's struggling that would be hard for parents to hear, yet very important for them to understand? I think it just goes back through letting your kids go through their own process. Because they're, like, I know they're hurting. And I know what I do affects my parents, too. But, like, I'm having to reteach myself how to live my life. And they need to reteach themselves on how to do something, too. Like, it's not a one-way street. If you want your kid to change, you need to change, too. Like, you can't keep controlling them. If they're doing all they can, you just need to know that that's enough for that minute. And you need to just be there instead of trying to fix it for them because you can't fix it for them. It's something they need to do on their own. Since you've had experience with a few different recovery facilities, if you were to, you know, become somebody who worked in a facility like this with kids like you, what would you change? What would you do differently as a person who runs, owns, or works at a facility where teenagers are living trying to recover? I would probably just 
like implant all the tools you can and then let them kind of take those tools and do what they need to do with them. Like just teach them like, okay, let's come up with a list. Like when you're freaking out, give me 10 coping skills that'll help you. And then when they're freaking out, don't tell them like, oh, well, go on a run or go read a book. Like just remind them what do you need to do to feel better? Because you can't, if someone's always there when they're in treatment to tell them what to do to be better, they're going to get out. And when no one's there to tell them what to do anymore, they're going to be lost. Are you ready for that 12th step yet? Are you ready to, to start helping other people your age or younger or older go through their process? Or are you still, are you just still too raw? I think I'm ready, honestly, because, I don't know, I've known what I wanted to do for a long time. I want to be an addiction therapist when I'm older because I think in a lot of ways, like, helping other people helps me. Because even though I'm being there for them and I'm, like, talking to them about their problems and focusing on them, it makes me feel like I'm not alone. Like, I can be their support system, but honestly, by them just telling me what they're going through and me being able to relate to that, like that's enough of a support for me. Like I know I'm not alone anymore. And through giving advice to them, I'm kind of giving advice to myself. Like I know the right things to do and I know the right things to say, but saying it to someone else kind of helps me remind myself too. We're at the uh, the end of our hour. I want to give you a couple minutes to to just talk to another teenager or to parents or to clinicians or teachers. Just say if there's anything else left unsaid or if there's anything else you need to say that's going to support you in all this. I don't know. I think if I wanted to tell another teen something, it would just be that it is possible. Like you don't have to be like this forever. You don't have to be lost and hurt forever. And it takes work, but, like, it is possible. If you can get yourself into a bad situation, you can get yourself out of it. It'll be hard, but I don't know. I never believed when people told me, like, there's a light at the end of the tunnel or whatever, but there really is. And even if you're doing everything good, there's still going to be bad days. There's always going to be bad days because that's just life. But there's eventually going to be more good to outweigh it. And you should just get to the point where there's enough good to make life worth living. And it is possible. I'm so impressed by you. And, and you've come so far in such a short amount of time. And I know your struggle's thick and deep. And I'm not going to go all cheerleader on you like I have in the past. Because, you know, you've been very real with your fragility in this process. But... Because you're able to be this real and because you're able to be this raw and honest, what I can tell you, one thing I want you to hear me say is this is what someone who's really in recovery sounds like. When someone comes off, oh, man, I got this and, you know, I, and here's it. I'm going to help everybody and I'm going to and I know all the answers now. You go, oh, crap, like they're not. And you sound like someone who's in that battle for your life. No, I'm not fighting for you. Your parents aren't fighting for you. Everybody has stepped aside to let you fight for you. And everything you said, everything that you're doing, the careful steps that you're taking, 
what I can tell you after, and I'm coming up on 20 years of sobriety, you're going through what successful recovery looks like now. And that's the the only thing I can tell you. I, I, I have no secrets. I have no hints or, or tactics. This is the hard part. And this is the everyday part. And this is the one day at a time part. And this is the wake up and the first thing you think about and the go to sleep and the last thing you think about part. But at some point, not doing it becomes the habit. And life on life terms becomes a habit. And you're moving towards that. And I'm, I've spent this entire time listening to you talk, trying not to burst into tears and embarrass you or embarrass myself. I'm really proud of you. You've come a long way. And you're fighting really the good fight. So nice work. That means a lot to hear from the person that has really seen me at my worst. I feel like I said at the beginning, I feel like I've, I've finally gotten to meet you. And I really like you as a person. And I can't wait until you come and tell your story to our kids. Thank you, Aaron. Parents, I really want you to take everything she said to heart. There was nothing but honesty her whole way through. There's no script. I'm not hearing any papers rattle in my headphones. She's just speaking the truth as it's coming to her. So really hear it. As always, parents, you got to take care of yourself first. You take care of your adult relationship second, and you take care of your kids third, because in that way, you do your best work with the kids. This has been Beyond Risk and Back, and we will talk again soon. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Join us each week for your connection to experts in adolescent health and wellness, recovery, and responsibility, and also to listen to teens talk about their lives in crisis. For more information on our program for struggling teens or me, please go to firemountainprograms.com, join us on Facebook at Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center, or at Beyond Risk and Back. Visit our YouTube channel at Fire Mountain RTC for even even more support with our parent training videos. Special thanks to Mental Health News Radio for their continued love and support of our program. Please go to mentalhealthnewsradio.com to see all of their podcasts. Feel free to email me at Aaron at firemountainprograms.com. <laughs>